My name is Roger Stacy, and I'm a member of the Athenaeum, and also I'm on the board of directors of both the Boston and national branches of the English-speaking union. Uh, and the Boston branch is delighted uh, to collaborate once more with the Athenaeum uh, in order to bring you this year's wrench speaker, uh, Professor Richard Buckley. Let me, while I have your attention, tell you just a little bit about the English-speaking union. Uh, it was organized in 1917 in London and 1920 in the United States by Sir Evelyn Wrench, after whom this lecture series is named. Um, there was a group of like-minded Brits and Americans who felt that the maintenance of the close association which was established between the two countries during World War I was essential to maintaining the peace going forward. And um, so that's what happened. And we have 60 branches, more or less, in the United States and 70 branches worldwide uh, dedicated to fostering friendly relationships among people who speak English and revere uh, the law and culture that we share in common. And a great deal of the success of the English-speaking union is a result of the growing universality of English around the world. For more information about that, uh, I urge you to visit our websites. There's the London website, the New York website, and the Boston website, and you can find out all about us, and perhaps join us in our efforts. Professor Richard Buckley grew up in Leicester and um, did his BA at the University of Durham, and then after several years of working in, as a field archeologist, did his PhD at the University of Leicester. And he's co-director of the University of Leicester Archeological Services, uh, which is quite interesting, actually. If you're a Roman town, as Leicester is, you have a lot of archaeology. And if you ever want to build anything in Leicester, you have to call in Professor Buckley and his team to certify that the site is able to be built. So those of us who have run into difficulties building anything in this country don't even know <laughs> how difficult things can be. Uh, Professor Buckley received an OBE last year from the Queen for services to archaeology, and he very modestly says that uh, he accepted it on behalf of his whole team. I'd like to uh, stop now and let him tell you his story, so please welcome Professor Richard Buckley. Well, thank you all for a very warm welcome to Boston, my first visit here, and thank you to Roger for a lovely introduction. Now, with this topic, I can't really sort of build the suspense terribly well, because of course you all know exactly what we found. <laughs> but then, of course, in any good Shakespeare play, we all know what's going to happen anyway, don't we? So I'm going to start with a slide, which is actually the very moment that two leg bones were found on the site, uh, which is the, the car park or the parking lot of the Social Services Department of Leicester City Council. So this is the sixth hour of the excavation, and two human leg bones turned up. But little did we know at that stage whose they were. And there was a rather sort of, rather sort of prophetic uh, clap of thunder and torrential rain almost uh, shortly afterwards, as you can see from, from the sky there. 
Now, the project for me started in 2011 uh, when I had a phone call uh, in January from a certain Philippa Langley uh, of the Richard III Society and also a screenwriter. And I think my initial reaction was it was one of these wacky phone calls you have to listen to uh, where somebody has a sort of uh, fairly madcap idea and you then have to let them down very gently and say, well, actually, sorry, but it won't really be possible. But what really uh, struck me about Philippa was that she had the, the de determination and drive to see this project through, which was to search for the remains of Richard III, which had been buried in Leicester in August 1485, Richard having been defeated in battle by Henry Tudor, who then became Henry VII. But of course the site had been redeveloped many, many times since the 15th century, and nobody really knew where the remains were, and nobody knew where the buildings of the friary in which they were buried were either. So I was very much pessimistic about the project from the outset. So Philippa described me as glass half empty, whereas she was glass half full to the extent that she'd even designed uh, uh, what she would like as the tomb for reinterring the remains and thought about the, uh, the sort of manner of service that might be held. Now, the other thing I ought to say really is, as archaeologists, we never, ever go in search of named individuals. It's not really something that generally attracts us. Uh, we're much more at home, really, learning about the lives of ordinary people. So, for example, in Leicester is, is one example where we excavated the backyards of medieval properties and we sift through the contents of cesspits and wells to find broken pottery and other unmentionable things that tell us about uh, the, the sort of diet and health of the population. That's what we normally do. And I think I can put my hand on my heart and say that's true, because the other famous person buried in Leicester is Cardinal Wolsey, who, on his way to London to face the wrath of Henry VIII, died in 1530 and was buried in the Lady Chapel of the Abbey. Now, we did nine seasons of excavation there, but not once were we tempted to go and have a look in the Lady Chapel. Uh, instead, we decided to focus our attentions on the kitchens and the guest hall down here, again, sieving through drains for uh, things like fish scales and uh, evidence of food preparation, and also looking at the guard robes as well. So, yeah, we don't look for named individuals. Um, but what was attractive about this project was that it was actually giving us the potential to do a, purely bit of, a pure bit of archaeological research on one of Leicester's great religious houses, the, 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 the Friary of the Franciscans, the Grey Friars, about which we knew very little. Now, I'm sure everybody here is, has, a, has a very intimate knowledge of the Wars of the Roses. But just in case, uh, I'm going to do a, a sort of 20-second summary of these uh, wars that dominated the 15th century in England. And they were essentially wars between two factions of the same house. Uh, so the Lancastrians and the Yorkists all descended back from people like John of Gaunt and Edward III. So they're all related anyway. Now, in 1399, Henry Bolingbroke, a Lancastrian, uh, de deposed Richard II and became King Henry IV. His son was King Henry V. His son, King Henry VI, who became king as an infant, in 1422. He was then deposed by Edward of York uh, in 1461 at the Battle of Towton. Um, uh, Edward then reigned for a while, but then Henry was restored briefly in 1470 to 71, Henry VI Part II. But that didn't last very long uh, because then Edward came back again and. <laughs> 
At the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471, uh, Henry was, Henry's forces were finally defeated once and for all, and Henry's son, Edward, Prince of Wales, was killed, so there's no longer an heir apparent to the throne on the Lancastrian side. Now, Edward was married to Elizabeth Woodville, a very powerful family, and amongst their children were the, the heir, the, the, the new heir to the throne, and uh, confusingly another Edward, Sir Edward, Prince of Wales, and his brother, Richard, Duke of York. One other brother, I think, George, but died very young, and the remainder were sisters. Edward died in April 1483, and so his eldest son, Edward, was then declared King of England as Edward V, but not actually crowned at that stage. Then, in June 1483, the marriage of Edward's father, Edward IV, and Elizabeth Woodville was declared invalid, which then meant that he and his brother were both, therefore, illegitimate. So then on the scene, of course, comes uh, Edward IV's younger brother, Richard. I won't call him Wicked Uncle Richard, because that's very much a matter of debate. And he then becomes King Richard III. The, the princes, meanwhile, are not seen. Uh, they've been uh, uh, kept for safekeeping in the Tower of London, and they disappear uh, somewhere around the time of the coronation of Richard in the summer of 1483. So what happened to them is one of the great questions of English history. Uh, were they ruthlessly murdered on the orders of Richard? Did they die of natural causes or did they escape? And that's one of the aims of the Richard III Society is to get somewhere towards the truth of the matter uh, of that story plus also Richard himself and what sort of man he was. So there's Richard, rules 1483-1485, but then he is then challenged by Henry Tudor, who defeats him at the Battle of Bosworth Field on the 22nd of August 1485, and so Henry then becomes Henry VII of England. Now, it's a very simplified version. Uh, there's lots of reading you could do. Uh, there will be a short test at the end of the uh, lecture. <laughs> Right, so Richard, uh, after Bosworth, we, we know he's brought back to Leicester, and there, according to the historian John Rouse, was buried in the choir of the Friars Minor. That's the Grey Friars Church uh, in the town. So the big question really was then what happened to Richard's remains after the friary had been dissolved in 1538, when Henry VIII dissolved most religious houses in England. Did they stay there, uh, and the site was then redeveloped around them, or was there any truth in uh, a story that circulated very widely in Leicester until our discovery, and that was that an angry Leicester mob, as if they'd do such a thing, dug up the remains of Richard and threw them in the River Saw, which runs through the town. So here's um, Bowbridge, as it was in the 19th century, and this river, a very small river by American standards, uh, is where Richard's remains were thought to have been thrown. And that was a very commonly be believed story, and there's a great plaque that was put up on the wall on this building, which actually declared that uh, near that spot lie the remains of Richard III, the last of the Plantagenets, 1485. The old bridge is long gone, and there's a narrow boat there about to get stuck under the new bow bridge. So was that true? We couldn't really be sure, but it was certainly commonly believed. Now, on to the main part of the story. I need to give you a little bit of an introduction into where Leicester is. It's not a, a very well-known town, or at least not until recently. And certainly now, with, with the success of its soccer team, it's, to, it's becoming a lot more well-known than it was. It lies very much in the centre of England, about 100 miles north of London. 
It was founded in the, uh, the first activity of the town is in the first century BC. So there's an Iron Age settlement with uh, trading content, contacts with the continent and they're minting gold coins and things like that. So very high status settlement. The Romans come uh, in the late 40s AD and it becomes one of the top 10 towns of Roman Britain with a full range of public buildings, town defences, uh, townhouses with mosaic pavements and wall plaster and things like that. In the medieval period, uh, it's quite a small town. It's not even a city. It's, a, it's called a borough. Uh, so not quite a one-horse town, but uh, not many horses, shall we say, and a population maybe only of three or 4,000, something like that. In the 18th and 19th centuries, it becomes a centre for the hosiery industry. So knitting was the, was the great thing in Leicester. And there are factories like the Woolsey factory who prided themselves on providing undergarments to the world, as shown by this uh, jolly Jack Tarr uh, washing out his undies in a barrel on, on, the, uh, on the ship. But the result of all this industry uh, and the fact that it then declined in the uh, 1980s has actually meant that large areas of the historic core of the city have been made available for new development and therefore new archaeological investigation. So this is what's loosely called the historic core of Leicester. Uh, the River Saw, we're looking southwest, the River Saw runs along this area here, so the early settlements along the banks of the Saw, and it spreads into the area enclosed by the Red Line in the Roman period. These areas are all excavations that we've been doing over the last 10 years or so, so £4 million worth of excavation, uh, three sites, two lost churches, 2,000 burials, a townhouse, a Roman townhouse, and the collapsed wall of a Roman public building, so lots of good archaeology. By contrast, the area where the Greyfriars site lay is largely unexplored in that yellow zone there, and just two small interventions where archaeologists looked down holes when new lift shafts were being put in in a couple of buildings. So we didn't really know what was going on on the site of Greyfriars at all. The other thing to say about our archaeology is it's not very well preserved. We've got quite a depth of it. It goes down something like four and a half metres. So like Boston, uh, where I understand the ground is largely made up because of the, 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 sort, of, um, the, the, uh, the sort of marshiness of the, of the terrain, uh, a lot of buildings in Leicester have to be constructed on pile foundations. Uh, so great concrete piles that go deep into the ground. Um, but the, the thing about Leicester's archaeology is, is that each generation recycles the building materials from previous generations, which means that generally we don't find intact walls or floors or anything like that. So typically, if we're doing well, we might find the remains of the foundations of a wall, like here. This is a Roman wall. But more usually, we get something called a robber trench, which is where all the stones have been removed and the resulting trench has then been filled with all the unwanted material, leaving a dark stripe in the ground. And these robber trenches then tell us what the plan of a building might have been. Now, Philippa um, was great in, in uh, organising this project, um, getting the impetus for it, getting permission from the City Council, and in particular fundraising. So the project uh, had money from the University of Leicester, Leicester City Council, but very much uh, was also uh, funded by the Richard III Society, members of whom generously gave funds to, to help it get off the ground. Now, we had something like a budget of around about $50,000, 
which sounds like a lot of money until you realise that over half of that money has got to be spent relocating the social services staff cars and also uh, consolidating the trenches afterwards and putting the black top tarmac back and painting all the white lines. So what we actually had to spend was round about, uh, I don't know, $20,000, which equated to digging three trenches over a period of three weeks with three members of staff. And it was a 1% sample of the precinct of the friary. So it was a bit of a long shot, I have to say. And what we had to do was, first of all, find the Franciscan friary buildings. Second, within the friary, identify specific buildings. Thirdly, locate the friary church. Then locate the east end of the church, specifically the choir, where Richard's meant to be buried. And then finally, locate the mortal remains of Richard III. No problem. And we had a launch day uh, on uh, the 24th of August of 2012, expecting the local press to turn up only, but then found ourselves overwhelmed with the world's press. So many North American newspapers, the New York Times, the LA Times, but also some oddities like uh, Georgian television came uh, from Eastern Europe and uh, also the New Zealand Morning Report radio programme. So huge amounts of interest, and I think what was really going through my mind was that we were being set up to fail internationally. Um, but anyway, so looking down this list of objectives, really they become more and more unlikely until you get to the bottom of the list. And no, it wasn't realistically considered that we would actually find the remains of Richard, but we might actually get some interesting information about the friary itself. Um, the other thing I learned at that stage, uh, having not really been prepared for talking to the press, before, was it's not a good idea to be flippant when they're around, because they will, um... <laughs> These things come back to haunt you. <laughs> so... <laughs> Luckily in cake form, so it was okay. It's all right. Right, now, back to the main story. Um, this is a, a, a reconstruction drawing of what the Borough of Leicester looked like, we think, in the roundabout 1450, 1480, something like that. So it's, it's the same view as before of the, uh, of the, uh, of the, from the aerial photograph. Now, within the uh, walls of uh, the Roman town, later on, the, the, uh, the medieval period, uh, the, the whole area became reoccupied. Lots of new houses and churches. And we also get things like there's a friary up here, the Austin Friars, the Augustinians founded on an island between two arms of the river uh, in the 13th century. The, the uh, Dominicans here, the Black Friars, have their friary not found yet. And then the Grey Friars, just here in the, heart, the commercial heart of the medieval borough, are there around about 1230. Up here, we have a religious precinct that's founded by the Lancastrians, uh, rather boringly called the Newark, the New Work. Uh, which contains the Church of the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. All of this is now long gone under modern development. Now, the friary we don't know much about. I've said it's there by 1230. We know that they're uh, building the church in 1255 because we hear of timber being obtained from the king. But mostly we hear about uh, people who are buried there, like two of the chief friars in England. They're called provincials, so Peter Swinsfield and William of Nottingham. There's a lady called Eleanor Lavener, who's perhaps a, a benefactor. We hear about Richard III, of course. And then we also hear the sad tale from 1402, 
Bear in mind, this is after uh, Henry IV has, has, has deposed Richard II. The Leicester Friars, here they are, uh, are uh, decide to uh, support the rebellion in Wales against Henry IV and also spread rumours that Richard II is still alive. Not a good idea. So they're summoned to see Henry IV, and uh, when asked who's the rightful king of England, they give the wrong answer. So they all have a sticky end, unfortunately. <laughs> So that would have, I imagine that would have been quite sort of uh, still very strong in their memories uh, in the 1480s. So not much information at all. No plans survive, no engravings. All we know is where it was. Now, on to the story for uh, uh, Richard III and Leicester. Um, we're now on the eve of the Battle of Bosworth. So this is August of 1485. Uh, very briefly... Henry Tudor lands in southwest Wales near Milford Haven, marches across Wales via Shrewsbury, and then down Watling Street, a Roman road, and eventually encamps on the Leicestershire-Warwickshire border near a place called Athelstan. Meanwhile, Richard is on his way down from uh, Nottingham to Leicester, where he plans to rendezvous with his armies, uh, the northern contingent under the Earl of Northumberland, the Percy family, the eastern under the Duke of Norfolk, and the southern under Sir Robert Brackenbury. So we expect round about 8,500 men, but we can't be sure. So he's probably outnumbering Henry Tudor's men. By tradition, he marches in through the north gate of Leicester, and there spends the night in an inn that was formerly known as the White Boar, the White Boar being uh, Richard's badge, but which hastily changed its name to the Blue Boar after the Battle of Bosworth for obvious reasons. And in that upper chamber is where he's meant to have stayed on a, on a self-assembly, uh, knocked-together bed, which, was, of course, was never reclaimed for obvious reasons. So that's now in the collections of uh, Leicestershire museums, although I have to say it is a bit dodgy in terms of being a 15th-century bed, but uh, nevertheless, it's a, it's a nice little artefact to survive. And there are many legends surrounding the inn which I haven't got time to go into. Next morning, he leaves with great pomp and ceremony on his white charger from the, from the White Boar Inn, and then marches through the centre of the borough of Leicester, through all these timber frame buildings, through the West Bridge, sorry, through the West Gate, over West Bridge, over Bow Bridge by the Friary, and that's where he's meant to have banged his spur against the parapet of the bridge, and an old soothsayer then prophesied that the next time he passed that way, it would be the head of his dead body that hit that very spot. And so then down towards Bosworth, which is about 15 or 16 miles from Leicester, and he marches down another Roman road, which has still survived as a route. Now, the Battle of Bosworth Field um, was uh, lost for many years, uh, and based on documentary evidence, the County Council opened a new visitor centre back in the 70s, but slightly inconveniently, new archaeological research has shown that the battle is actually a bit further south than they thought, but never mind. So just here, there's been lots of new uh, metal detector survey work done on either side of this Roman road, shown in the big map, which has revealed lots of lead round shot. And then most significantly, it's revealed this silver gilt badge of a boar, which would have been worn by one of Richard's uh, aristocratic retainers. So it's now thought that the focus of the battle was on the line of this Roman road. Uh, and that's where... Richard had seen an opening in the battle, decided to ride towards Henry Tudor and take him on in single combat, and probably would have succeeded in killing him, because he's much better trained, but then became mired on his horse, was pulled off his horse, and then killed, by tradition, by Resat Thomas. 
So Richard here is shown in this, this uh, reconstruction painting, riding down uh, Henry's standard bearer, William Brandon. And again in this drawing, here he is riding down the standard bearer, and then he was killed. And we're told by the Cronin Chronicles that Richard's body was found amongst the slain, many other insults were heaped upon it, and not very humanely, a halter was thrown around the neck and it was carried to Leicester. So here he is in this new uh, reconstruction painting, uh, his naked body slung over a horse. And Fabian tells us that and Richard, late king, was brought into that town for his body despoiled to the skin and naught being left about him so much as would cover his privy member. He was trussed behind a persuivant called Noroy as a hog or another vile beast and all besprung with mire and filth was brought to a church in Leicester for all men to wonder upon. A lot of people say, well, why was he brought back to Leicester? Well, it's really for the very simple reason that uh, Henry needed to make sure that the population recognised the fact that Richard was genuinely dead. And the population at large only have effigies on coins, which aren't very, uh, aren't very detailed. So what better place than Leicester where the population had waved off Richard a couple of days previously? He's then thought to have been brought into Leicester and his body put on display in this church up here, the Church of the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is also uh, full of Lancastrian tombs, so very much an added insult to Richard's memory. Then moved uh, shortly afterwards, uh, given the time of the year, only a couple of days was a very sensible thing to do, and there we're told by Rouse that he was buried in the choir of the Friars Minor, and the later historian Polydor Virgil says that this was done without pomp or solemn funeral. So it looks like a fairly hasty burial. About ten years later, Henry VII pays for an alabaster tomb to be placed over Richard's remains uh, with an image of Richard on the, on the top of the tomb and also a brass plaque, uh, which in many ways says more about Henry than it does about Richard. So there it survives for a bit longer until uh, 1538 when Henry dissolves the monasteries. The friar is then dissolved and then the big question was then what had happened to Richard's remains. Now the next story we hear about is this one from uh, Robert Herrick, uh, a former Lord Mayor of Leicester, born in 1540, and he buys the site of the friary in, 15, in, in, in the, late, sorry, the late 16th century, and he's convinced that uh, Richard's remains are still there, and uh, the tutor to his children is none other than Christopher Wren, father of the famous architect. And he shows Christopher Wren a handsome stone pillar three feet high with the inscription, here lies the body of Richard III, sometime King of England. So he believes that Richard's remains are still there in his garden. Now you might ask, how do we know where the friary actually was? Well, luckily we've got some very good early maps. And in particular, this one from 1741 shows very clearly the location of the Greyfriars site and also the adjacent uh, church of St. Martin, uh, now Leicester Cathedral. Now, just to really confuse everybody, uh, this now has north running that way, so all our previous views have been up here looking downwards. There's the Greyfriars. But what I can do is then enlarge it and actually make it uh, have north to the top. And so you can see very clearly, here's the outline of the precinct of the Greyfriars. Within it, trees and, uh, and cultivated land and then the, the uh, remains of Herrick's mansion, and also tantalisingly four paths leading to a central spot. 
maybe the central spot where the little column was that marked Richard's remains. Not X marks the spot, really, not quite. Now, next thing we've got to then think about is, is how much of the site's available for investigation. And if we then overlay it with the modern map of Leicester, you can see that all the blue buildings are modern buildings or buildings of the 19th and 18th centuries, which means that we only have something like 17% of the site that's potentially available for investigation. Um, a private car park here, the social services car park here, which is riddled with live services like fibre optics, gas pipes, electric cables, sewers, you name it. Plus the social workers weren't amazingly happy at the idea of losing their car park. And then the playground of an adjacent school. So it's a difficult one and uh, we, we had to rule out this area because of the, the sheer cost of moving all the cars. So we were left with something like 10% available, that was all. And you can see from this aerial what a difficult site it is. It's all covered in tarmac and very, very heavily used. That's Leicester Cathedral there, that's social services, and that's the school playground there. Now, next question then is really how do you decide where to put your trenches if there are no plans of the buildings? How do you then focus on where the church might be? Now, something you can try is something called ground-penetrating radar survey, which, uh, in very, very simple terms, sends uh, a beam into the ground, and depending on how long it takes to come back and its intensity, it can give you the lines of where walls and other features used to be. Now, the problem with Leicester's archaeology is it's incredibly complicated, and so far we've tried it about four times, and it's been a dismal failure on every single occasion. Um, but I thought it would be worth trying again on this, this site. You never know, we might get the friary, but no, it was a dismal failure again. Um, but what it did do was to reveal very, very clearly the lines of all of these cables and sewers and things so we could then locate the trenches safely and not uh, really upset the social services department. Now, with um, friaries, at least we have a fairly regular plan to work with. Uh, here's an example of the other, one of the other friaries in Leicester, which I, I dug on back in the 70s. And you can see here we've got a cloister, a courtyard, surrounded by a walkway, the Cloister Alley, which provides access to buildings like the Chapter House or at first floor level the dormitory. And in this case we've got the church on the south side. More usually the church is on the north side. So here's one from Norfolk, the Grey Friars at Walsingham. And you can see that we've got the church, main body of the church here, the nave and two aisles, leading to a bit called the walking place under the central tower of the church, with access into the choir with wooden choir stalls facing inwards, and then the presbytery and the high altar. We've also got access down the eastern cloister walk into the chapter house and so on. Uh, so that's one of the possibilities. So the church is either going to be at the north or at the south. But one thing they all have in common is that the buildings are all orientated east-west, which means that if we put in trenches north-south, we might in intersect a number of walls and maybe get somewhere closer to our goal of finding an identifiable building. So that's what we did, and here's uh, Matthew Morris laying out the trenches uh, with Leon Hunt. So uh, Matthew, very, uh, very, very good guy who, who supervised all of the work on the ground, and he tells me that he genuinely didn't spot the uh, letter R painted on the car park, just there. <laughs> and no, it doesn't mean this is where Richard III's buried. It's, um, it's a reserved spot. Anyway, 
But nevertheless, there was an R very close to where we found the remains. But let's gloss over that. So here's the first trench being excavated. Uh, rather unprepossessing to start with, it revealed uh, lots of horrible brick foundations for what we in England would call an outhouse, uh, meaning uh, where we keep our garden chairs. I think you have a different meaning in the States. But um, anyway, that's, that's what it was at the bottom of somebody's garden. There's Philippa Langley looking down. So it looked as though we were going to have to fill the trench in at the end of the day and go home, give the money back to all the sponsors. But then in the sixth hour, uh, a couple of leg bones turned up, a couple of human leg bones. So we knew at least that we were on the, trial, the, the trail of um, the Friary graveyard, which was a good start. But we didn't know whether these bones were in the church or in the external graveyard. So they were very carefully covered up until we knew a bit more. Then more interestingly, we found lots of um, piles of rubble from a demolished building. And then the breakthrough came when we found one of these robber trenches, these, these uh, ghost lines of where walls used to be. And so you can see just here, there's a pale line running across this trench. So that's a robber trench, a line of a wall. And on the inside of it is this odd sort of stone foundation, like a bench, and then the mortar bedding for a tile floor, where you could see the, uh, the, the outlines of the tiles that had all been prized up. We then found another uh, robber trench down here, indicating a building round about uh, seven metres wide, and a building where people seem to have been sitting on these benches facing one another. So here's one of the benches. You would have sat on that bit there with your legs dangling and resting on the ground here. Now what that really meant was that the, the building uh, must be used for sort of discussion or something like that, which really narrowed it down to being the chapter house, which is a major breakthrough because they're always on the eastern side of the cloisters. We then excavated the second trench and found a pair, so that's the first one, with those two robber trenches running east-west. And here's the second trench, and we found another pair of robber trenches running north-south, indicating a, 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 some sort of alleyway. So our working hypothesis then was that we'd found the cloister the Eastern Cloister Walk and the Chapter House, which then meant that the church could only be really down here at the south or up here at the north. Now, the north was the most suitable to continue exploration with what little money we had left. So we decided to dig another trench in the, uh, the, the playground of the school. Here we are, starting to dig that one. That almost immediately revealed uh, reused medieval tiles, uh, lots of different sizes laid in a very haphazard way, and we think these are probably one of the paths of Robert Herrick's garden. So we're, we're certainly in the right place now. But most importantly, we found a pair of massive robber trenches here and here, running east-west, uh, about 10 metres apart, so 30, 35 feet, something like that, with a buttress, and also evidence for the mortar bedding for tile floors again. So we've got a whacking great building on the north side, so it must be the church. We also found more burials in here, and we found uh, fragments of moulded masonry that came from windows, uh, so identified as early perpendicular in style of about 1400, but more about that in a minute. Now, 
Because we now knew that we had the church, it seemed appropriate to start digging that burial that we'd found on the first day, because that lay within the footprint of the church. And so Joab had been made a start on that, wearing full protective gear to prevent contamination of any DNA. Meanwhile, we decided also to expand the trench where we'd found the church to see if we could get an idea of which particular bits of the church. So here's the original trench running through the middle. We then went, east, went westwards and also eastwards. And what this did was reveal some interesting features. So first of all, we've got tiles laid crosswise, so diagonal tiles here, and high-status tombs. Whereas in here, we've got tiles laid long ways, it's also a step down, and we've also got these slender walls designed to carry something very uh, lightweight. So our working theory was that we had the choir, we had the end of the choir going towards the, the, uh, the high altar. And we invited um, a, a monastic specialist to come down and actually have a meeting on site on this Wednesday afternoon to talk about our interpretation, see if he agreed with it. And he was, we had this meeting, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. He was quite happy, we were chatting it all through, uh, when I was then interrupted by Matthew, who came from the other side of the site, who said, um, oh, you ought to come and have a look at what's going on over here. And uh, I said, uh, actually, if you don't mind, we're having a meeting, can you go away? And um, he then whispered in my ear, you'll never guess what. And uh, he said, We've, uh, the burial that we're digging seems to have curvature of the spine and also trauma to the skull. And of course, I knew, having talked to our visiting specialist, that, that meant it was also in the choir of the church. It was exactly where it should be. So I can't, re can't repeat what I said, of course. Um, that would be very uh, risque, I'm afraid. But uh, a few expletives, shall we say. Anyway, so it all come together within the space of one afternoon. Lots of other finds from the church. Uh, like these uh, brass letters from tomb inscriptions and lots of inlaid floor tile and things like that. So, all good stuff. Now, at that stage in the investigation, then, we're now looking southwards. Here's the neighbouring school playground and school buildings. And what we've then found, then, is that the church ran across east-west in the foreground with the cloister running back up there. Uh, interestingly... Uh, having examined these architectural fragments that came up and suggested the architecture of the church, uh, somebody then found an earlier photograph of the, church, uh, of the school which showed that all the windows had been replaced in the uh, 1920s and that, in fact, it once had early perpendicular-style windows of the 19th century. So they'd all, in fact, been dumped within the medieval church and been to the builders. So all of those windows, all modern, and uh, we were completely taken in by them. But there you go. So putting all that together, uh, that then gives us the, uh, the church very clearly here with walking place, the choir, presbytery, and that burial is tucked in just inside the choir. So it's in a, in a, a high-status part of the church, but I see it rather as a grudging bit of high-status. It's not right by the high altar. So its archaeological context is good for it being Richard III. Next thing to look at then is the grave itself. Um, the thing that really strikes you about the grave, having obviously we want to show you without the, with the skeleton removed first, uh, this is the head end, the west end, and that's the east end. It's a very irregular grave, so very roughly excavated, concave base and sloping sides, so not designed to take a coffin, unlike other graves we've found at the Grave Friars, which are, have right angle corners and vertical sides. So a rough piece of work. 
And it's also a piece of work which, it's amazing it survived at all, because modern disturbance from this outhouse comes right down to within inches of the skeleton. And we've also now discovered that this end, the west end, where the walking place should be, has also been heavily disturbed as well. So it's pretty remarkable. Now, when we look at the skeleton in situ, this is itself very instructive. We're now looking the other way round. So, yeah, west end is the head end, so north is that way. Um, and what strikes you, first of all, is that the grave is actually too short for the person interred within it. And what's happened is they've been laid down feet first, and then when they get to the head end, it's left the head and the upper torso at a very odd angle, propped up against the end of the grave. So that's an unusual thing to see. And that's why, in many ways, when Jarhubi was excavating the burial, the position of the skull took her by surprise. You can then see very clearly the curvature of the spine. And you can also see that the arms cross over the right hip with the right hand over the left, and that's a very unusual thing to see as well. I think we've only ever seen one other burial like it in Leicester, and that wasn't actually even in the graveyard, so it may be the murder victim or something like that. So it makes us wonder whether possibly these hands were uh, tied at the time of burial, but we can't prove it. There's no evidence at all for a coffin in the form of impressions in the ground, nor are there any uh, rusty iron nails. So it looks as though this person was buried naked or with a minimum of covering, possibly with the hands tied. Uh, the skeleton's in very good condition. Uh, the feet are missing. Uh, there's a terrible joke, which is uh, when pe pe one person said it's because he was defeated at the Battle of Bosworth. <laughs> oh, um, but there's no sort of sinister uh, reason for the feet being absent. It's because uh, 18th century gardeners dug trent horticultural trenches and probably didn't notice the things like the, the toe bones, which are very small. So this image here shows very clearly the head propped up against the end of the grave. And again, you can see the curvature of the spine and the way the hands are, are crossing at the, at the right hip. Now, although looking at it, you think, well, it's obviously Richard III, isn't it? It's in the right place. Uh, he's showing all these interesting characteristics. But of course, we couldn't prove it until we'd done lots of scientific analysis. Uh, for example, we had no date for the remains at this stage. So we had a press conference to announce that we probably found Richard III, but this would now need to be proved through a full program of scientific analysis. And one of the first things that we did was something called radiocarbon dating, uh, which is a technique that relies on the fact that we all absorb carbon through the food chain and through the atmosphere, and that one of the isotopes of carbon, carbon-14, is unstable and decays at a known rate when we die. So you can do a determination which gives you a probable date of death. Uh, so the first date of that, from that came out with a 95% probability that this person died between 1430 and 1460, which is actually a little bit too early for our man. Now, the dates can sometimes be uh, skewed if the person had uh, a diet with a high marine content because seafood, uh, shellfish and things absorb carbon at different rates. So it was then remodelled on the basis of that, but if anything, it made it worse. Um, we now have a 95% probability that this person died between 1455 and uh, 15, sorry, 1640. Now, the only thing we can do, though, is now look at this graph. And because the right-hand part of the graph 
is in the getting into the 17th century, we can disregard that because we know the church is gone by 1540 and is closed to burial. So the remodeled date then is 1450 to 1540, which is okay for somebody who died in 1485. Next thing then is to start looking at the skeleton itself. Uh, this was taken to the local hospital to be scanned before anything was done at all, to create a 3D record of it. It was then brought back to the university where it was very carefully washed over sieves and samples were taken and the osteology team started doing their analysis. Now, one of the first things that uh, happened uh, at that stage was that one person rang me up and said, I'm not sure it's a male, it might be a female. And uh, that isn't really what you want to hear when you've gone public with um, <laughs> something like this. That's when you plan your emigration strategy, really. Um, but there's a serious point to it, and that's as part of the process of um, sexing the skeleton, you look at characteristics like the pelvis and the skull, but you also look at the general size of the number of the bones. And this male uh, had a very gracile build, so very slender. Uh, and that's why it, it, was, it was not absolutely certain to start with. The, uh, the forensic pathologists and osteologists then worked out an estimate of age of 30 to 34, which is uh, okay, because Richard was 32. His height was about 5 feet 8 inches, and he suffered from uh, this spinal abnormality identified as idiopathic adolescent onset scoliosis. The idiopathic bit meaning uh, we're not sure whether it's environmental or whether it's genetic. Certainly no other odd characteristics like you hear of in Shakespeare and other writers, like a, a withered arm or a limp or anything like that. So the, the only abnormality is this curvature of the spine. Now, interestingly, when you look at the historical accounts, they tally quite well with this analysis. So, for example, John Rouse tells us that Richard was small of stature, with a short face, unequal shoulders, the right higher and the left lower. And then a bit less helpfully, Nicholas von Popelau, about whom we know very little in terms of what his stature was, says, King Richard is a high-born prince, three fingers taller than I, but a bit slimmer and not as thick-set as I am and much more lightly built. He has quite slender arms and thighs and also a great heart. Uh, there's an uncorroborated reference to the Countess of Desmond saying that Richard was a good dancer, but I, I've, I've not found the reference to that yet. So that all works quite well. The spinal abnormality uh, was modelled using this new 3D printing technology. Uh, so you can see, first of all, that the two vertebrae are very much um, asymmetric. They should match pretty well, but they don't. And what they did was they used the digital scans to then use a, a, a laser sintering process to print individual vertebrae, which were then all put together, if this works, to create a model of what the spine would have been like in life. So it's very much a corkscrew uh, abnormality and yes it would have affected him to an extent but certainly we know he was riding all over the country in the 1480s and also fought in battles so maybe at 32 it hadn't yet really um, caused too much problem. Next part of the analysis was then to look at the uh, manner of death itself and uh, something like 11 injuries were identified on the skull all perimortem so at or around the time of death so we have these dished injuries uh, and an analysis of, uh, microscopic analysis of them shows that the same blade was used to deliver at least two of the injuries, there are little striations from the nicks in the blade. There's also a stab wound in the top of the skull, which you can see this square section uh, hole just there. 
and that's thought to have been dealt by something called a, a rondel dagger, which has a square section blade. Uh, and it's been done with such force, it's caused flaps of bone to come down on the inside of the skull, as shown in this cross-section. And also you can see the flaps here on the inside of the skull. Amazingly, not thought to have caused death, like the previous injury. Often this sort of dagger was used to deliver the coup de grace, shown in these rather grisly uh, medieval illustrations. Now, the more serious injuries occur elsewhere. Now, as Dr. Jo Appleby says to her students, there are some holes on this skull that are meant to be there and there are some that are not. And the most obvious one is this one. And this is a huge injury on the base of the right-hand side of the skull. Uh, the flap of bone that was displaced was actually found with the burial. And that's thought to have been inflicted by something called a halberd, which is a staff weapon with an axe-like blade. So a great chop to the base of that part of the skull. The second serious injury is this one, which is a penetrating wound on the left-hand side of the skull from um, a long dagger or sword, which has penetrated the skull by over 10 centimetres. So these are the most significant injuries. Elsewhere on the body, there don't seem to be any other injuries consistent with fending off blows. So that leads us to think that probably at this stage in the battle, he was unhelmeted, but was still wearing the rest of his armour for protection. He must have been unhelmeted because the protection around the back of the neck and around the chin is so good. Now again, when we look at the historical accounts, uh, we hear from, for example, Molinet that one of the Welshmen then came after him and struck him dead with a halberd. And then uh, a poem in praise of Resap Thomas says, killed the boar, shaved his head. And then the most graphic, the ballad of Lady Bessie, they beat his bassinet to his head until the brain came out with blood. They never left him till he was dead. So again, these are consistent with the, um, the forensic pathologist and osteology results. The front of the skull, by contrast, has hardly any injuries. There's one small uh, penetrating wound to the right-hand side of the face. Uh, there's also a nick on the jawbone as well, and then a smaller injury higher up. And what's quite interesting about that is that uh, skulls from uh, a, a burial pit at the Battle of Towton show that people were often horribly disfigured. And it makes us wonder whether perhaps Henry VII, now Henry VII, prevented Richard's face being disfigured so he'd remain uh, very recognisable still. Two more injuries elsewhere on the skeleton. Uh, one on the tenth rib, a little nick just there. Which is thought to be an insult injury, perhaps when this, the naked body's been slung over the horse. So a stab in the back. And then there's also an injury on the pelvis, uh, which is thought to, again to be an insult injury. So somebody's taking a pot shot into his buttocks maybe when he's slung over the horse again. You often see examples of that. Here he is on slung over the horse. Uh, but there are also examples of people having injuries like that actually in battle itself because the male coats aren't a very good protection for the nether regions. But we think an insult injury is the most likely. Right, so at that stage of the investigation, then, we've got a good archaeological context. The dating's not bad. The, uh, the, the, the skeleton indicates a man of uh, the right age, uh, died at the right time, the uh, injuries are consistent with uh, death in battle. But what was always going to take this project one stage further was DNA analysis. 
Now, we couldn't do uh, male line DNA down Richard's direct descendants because there aren't any. So we're going to use something called mitochondrial DNA, which is a form of DNA which passes down the female line. So it passes down from mother to sons and daughters, but obviously it's only passed on by daughters because it's in the egg. So that was the plan. Now, in terms of the family tree, we've got to rule out these male line descendants because, for, for a start, Richard doesn't have any descendants. His brother George, Duke of Clarence, doesn't. And then Edward's sons, the prince in the tower. Sorry, that Edward. So we have to rule all of those out. So what we're looking for is female line descendants from Richard's sisters. Now, luckily, there was actually a published family tree uh, down to about 1907 from Richard's elder sister, Anne of York, and then the historian, Dr. John Ashdown Hill, then made a link with a living relative, Joy Brown, later Joy Ibsen, whose son, Michael, is a Canadian carpenter living in London. And so here he is having his DNA tested by Dr. Turi King, who was the uh, project geneticist. Now, obviously, this family tree had to be checked very, very carefully to make sure there were no, no holes in it. It had to be uh, very fully documented. And that was all done by uh, Professor Kevin Shura. And in the process, he managed to identify a second lineage down to somebody called Wendy Doldig, uh, who's a New Zealander living in London. And uh, Wendy was blissfully unaware that she had any relationship with these families. And I think that it took several phone calls to convince her it wasn't some sort of spoof. Um, so the idea was that uh, the DNA between these two modern living descendants would be tested first. And all being well, we could then go back and triangulate back to the ancient DNA found in the skeleton itself. So, amazingly, here's part of Michael Ibsen's DNA profile. Much, it's much more complex than this would suggest. And the link with Wendy Dildig was found to be almost perfect, with I think just one peak different. It then, of course, took months and months and months to extract the ancient DNA from the skeleton. It's not like you see on TV where it's done overnight or the other end of a phone. It takes months to do. And so Skeleton 1 uh, then was found to have a match with these other two, uh, which then meant that in uh, the... Well, in fact, I found out on February the 3rd, 2013, and on February the 4th, 2013, we then uh, announced to the world that beyond reasonable doubt we'd found the remains of Richard III, the last Plantagenet King of England. So all of these threads of evidence came together to support the identification. Now since then, there's been a bit more work done on the male line DNA going back to an earlier common ancestor, so Edward III. So the modern Somerset family come down this line right back to Edward III via John of Gaunt, and then Richard III comes down from Edward III. So theoretically, there should be a Y-chromosome link going that way. However, there wasn't. There was no DNA match, which means that uh, what the uh, genealogists euphemistically called false paternity events must have occurred during this um, lineage. Uh, so at least two have been identified somewhere in that lineage, but let's gloss over that. Um, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't actually affect the identification anyway, because the, the statistics say, still say it's 99.999% certain it's Richard through the mitochondrial DNA. The last thing that was done, uh, one of the things that was done uh, by the Richard III Society, which is a pretty amazing piece of work, is that they commissioned a facial reconstruction from Caroline Wilkinson of Dundee University, 
uh, and Caroline very carefully didn't, she's not a historian, didn't look at any portraits and uh, did this technique of applying layers of tissue to the digital image of the skull and came up with this amazing image um, of Richard, which when you uh, then compare it with the earliest known portrait that's in the collection of the Society of Antiquaries, it's fairly uh, startling at how the facial shape is, is very similar. We now know from DNA that his eyes were blue and also that he was probably born with blonde hair, which would have darkened with age. So this portrait may actually be a, a fairly close resemblance to, to, to what, he, what he was. Now, just to finish with, um, a couple of more little bits of investigation have been done since the identification. We've been looking at things called stable isotopes. Uh, the oxygen isotopes can tell you about uh, the water that people were drinking uh, because of the effect of geology on water supply. And because we now know it's Richard III, we can look at certain bones which tell us about certain periods of his life. So, for example, the rib, the minerals in the rib renew every three years, the femur every 15 years, etc. So looking at his earliest uh, samples from his teeth, it sort of it corroborates the, uh, the historical accounts that he's living in the eastern side of England because we've got a good match in the values with this sort of green zone. And then at uh, puberty, he moves to the marches of Wales, which again works out pretty well. He then moves back into the green zone later in life. And then we get some rather odd readings uh, which almost suggests he went on holiday in the southwest of Ireland or to Spain, but actually is probably reflecting the fact that he's getting more wine from the continent when he becomes king, so drinking a bit more. The other thing we hear, we, we, we've analysed are the carbon and nitrogen isotopes. This has been done by the British Geological Survey, uh, Angela Lamb there, and um, what that tells you is about, a bit more about the sorts of things that are being eaten, and certainly looking right up here, the red blobs, uh, so the rib, for example, is telling us about when Richard was king, and he's then eating higher trophic species, so things like freshwater fish, wildfowl, and things like that. Uh, whereas all the normal people in England are pretty much vegetarian down here, uh, and very rarely get fresh fish at all. And you can see from the list of um, animals here that were eaten at Richard's coronation feast, it's a pretty rich diet including crane and heron and things like that. He also, unfortunately for him, suffered from intestinal parasites, and uh, samples from the gut area have now revealed uh, the egg casings of roundworm, which is a parasite which would have been um, passed through poor personal hygiene, probably Richard's um, serving staff and cooks rather than Richard himself. Now, just to finish, I'd like to say really that it's been a, an amazingly exciting and rewarding project, not just for finding Richard III, but also for the contribution it's made to our knowledge of Leicester in the medieval period, and in particular in this great medieval religious house about which very little was known. This reconstruction has been done by De Montfort University, another university in Leicester, to try and help people understand the layout of the friary buildings in relation to St. Martin's Church, now Leicester Cathedral, and also the town defences of Leicester in the medieval period as well. So as we crash through the west window of the church, it'll hopefully give you an idea of how the tomb would have sat within the buildings. Crash. Right, so the church has 
a nave and a north aisle. We've, we've done further documentary research to confirm that. We then go through a wooden screen into the walking place under the main tower of the church, and another screen into the choir, and we see the tomb of Richard III on the right. There's actually no evidence what it looked like. That's just a, a supposition. The floor we do have evidence for from archaeology. A step up into the presbytery and the high altar. And then back down the choir to the tomb. So you can see that it's, it's tucked in to the choir and it's a, in a place where the public would not normally have been allowed to see it, so it couldn't become a focus for future descent. So it's sort of status in a way, but also tucked out of the way. And there I will stop. But thank you very much for listening.